the best-selling compliance handbook by compliance evangelist and compliance podcast network founder tom fox has been updated revised and improved in its new second edition this new podcast series will build upon the best nuts and bolts compliance handbook around to provide you the best information on implementing and enhancing a best practices compliance program and you are in for a real treat today because I have Ben DeCiani and Eric Feldman. Ben's the founder of Affiliated Monitors, Eric's senior vice president. And we're going to talk today about culture. These gents have been writing, thinking, and doing culture for about as long as anyone in the compliance space. So I couldn't think of two more well-suited people to have a conversation around how every compliance program, in my opinion, is based on culture and perhaps uh, we could start there by asking you both, why is culture so important to you guys? Eric, let's start with you. Well, it, you know, in my view, and I've said this in a number of different lectures, I see culture as a foundational internal control without which all other controls will fail. So the fundamental question that we ask when we go into a company isn't the typical ACFE fraud question, why do people commit fraud? The question is, why do people comply? What motivates people to comply? And in, in my view, it's the culture of the place that motivates people to comply. And all of the mechanisms surrounding culture, which we can go into, things like performance incentives, discipline, leadership, and messaging, all of those things create the kind of environment or culture that make people want to follow the rules. That's why it's so critical. So I've got a couple of additional thoughts that have sort of stayed with me over the years. And one is that I think culture sets the atmosphere for the company. You know, when you have an ethical culture, people feel comfortable right? And in that comfort, they're sort of comforted by the fact, number one, that they can speak up, right? That they're free of this sort of fear of a problem occurring or working for an unethical company. I think that impacts decision-making. I think it impacts how people think about the company internally, how people from the outside think of a company. The other thing I think uh, why culture is so important is that it really does create what I call sort of a self-policing mechanism, like people watching out for each other and making sure that people are staying sort of within the bounds of that culture. And when there's somebody that's an outsider or doing something that it's inappropriate, they can deal with that. And, you know, the last thing that I've talked about a lot is people like working for ethical companies, right? And that's an important element. So I think that's these are some of the reasons, Tom, why we think culture is so important. I think I've heard you say this perhaps more often, but actually both of you guys say you can walk into a company and, and really see if it's got a, a good or a bad culture. But there's also much more nuance than that. Simply, it's not a binary good or bad. It can be many different shades. So how do you help? How do you think through how to assess culture? Or how do you help a company assess its own culture? Well, you know, the the... First of all, the fact that you get a third party independent coming in to look at the organization from a culture standpoint is the first step. 
it's very difficult for people who are immersed in the culture to really evaluate how effective it is. One of the things that Finn and I see all the time are CEOs and other very senior leaders of the company who truly believe that they their company is ethical and that they're setting the right tone. And they may very well be doing that. The question is, to what extent is that messaging permeating the organization? They may send out, I remember one CEO telling us, I send out relentless emails on ethics. How could this ethical failure possibly have happened? Well, then you go as an independent, you go talk to people at the mid-level and the lower levels of the organization, and you ask them about that messaging. And to them, it doesn't resonate. It's a joke. They either don't read it, they delete it, or they're hearing alternative messages from their immediate managers saying, yeah, all that ethics stuff is good, but we got to sell contracts and do everything you can do to get these contracts out. And it doesn't matter what the consequences are. So it's that consistency of the messaging that creates the culture. And you, you've got to look at it from the top to the bottom of the organization. Yeah, so I agree with all of that. First of all, I think it, it takes some experience to be able to assess a corporate culture. I think that when a company is trying to look at, at itself, it's very difficult, as Eric's indicating, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But I think that you know, when you're doing an assessment as an independent, there's a lot of false positives that can be misleading indicators as to whether or not it's an ethical culture, right? And, you know, some of them are, are pretty obvious. And so, so not getting a lot of hotline calls. Does that indicate it's a, you know, uh, an ethical culture? Um, a check the box training exercise where people sign off that they've gotten training. Does that mean it's an ethical culture? Talking only to senior leadership within the company. Is that going to give you a full picture of what ethical culture looks like? You know, Eric and I, and, and uh, the company uh, affiliated, we do a lot of what we call deep dives into the company, talking to staff at all levels. That's where you get the real flavor of whether or not the company is ethical. You know, talking to people in remote locations and not just at headquarters and not just, and you know, in the ivory tower. That's where you get a real sense of what the company is like and what's going on within the company. Um, and so, you know, we believe very strongly that you know, it's it's difficult for a company to assess itself because sometimes staff are not going to necessarily give them the honest answer. They're going to give them the company line that the company wants, they think the company wants to hear. Um, so assessing that company um, really does require some experience in doing it, some um, sense of hearing themes that are emerging, or, you know, is there a level of paranoia as you're starting to talk to people, which might impact culture? You know, there's lots of different indicators that we find and threads that you have to pull on when you're doing that kind of assessment that really do give you a good flavor of what that culture is like, Tom. Affiliated Monitors is one of the first companies that provided a professional independent uh, integrity monitoring services. And from that work, you both have an affiliated monitors has performed these services from literally uh, one doctor shops to multi-billion dollar corporations for a wide variety of of legal violations. Uh, uh, 
doctors caught up in the opioid crisis, FCPA, antitrust, AML, and really everything in between state laws, municipal laws, federal laws. And I was so I was wondering if if a company has a major catastrophic failure leading to a major legal violation, how do they start to turn that around? And how does someone like affiliated monitors come in as a third party to help drive that culture change and then everything else they need to do to satisfy whatever government is uh, agency is regulating them? So, you know, from our experience, it always starts at the top. You know, if the ownership and the leadership of the company are fully committed to changing the culture, they're the drivers. If they're not committed and really committed, if they're just using lip service, it's going to fail and you're not going to get a culture change. Now, we've worked with companies that are so ethically sound at the middle and down within the company and at the top rotten. That's not going to create the kind of culture that you need. We've worked with companies where at the top, ethically sound, great leaders, you know, they lead by example. And yet at the middle level, there's some indicators of problems. So we believe that it really starts at the top. Those are the drivers and that the change must be real. Um, the other things that, you know, again, that hit me, when you're making a culture change, it can't just be words, you know, in an announcement or a pro proclamation. Oh, we've learned our lesson. And now, you know, here's what we're going to do. It takes action. It can't just use words. It takes a true commitment to changing the culture. Um, I call it sort of neon signs. You know, you can't put up another neon sign. Oh, ethics, ethics, and think that that's going to stick because it doesn't. Um, so the changes that have that do occur in these kind of situations have to be real, have to be impactful for, for people, and they have to be meaningful for, for people. And they need to occur throughout the organization. The other thing that I'll say, and I'll throw it over to Eric, is when you're trying to change a culture of an entire company, you can't just do it at the top of the organization. You really need to bring in sort of leadership at different levels of the organization and different parts of the organization, operations, administration, and make it more of a team approach to make these ethical changes to change the culture. Eric, over to you. You know, Tom, it's kind of like um, uh, going to the doctor and you're feeling sick and, you know, the doctor can make an assumption uh, that you have gastritis and give you a pill uh, and you walk away. Uh, when actually you could have some serious issue going on that uh, because you weren't properly examined and diagnosed uh, could get worse. Uh, I've seen cases where people will evaluate corporate culture within a company and overlay some cookie cutter uh, solution that here's how you become ethical uh, and do this training, uh, change your code, um, uh, create, uh, you know, messaging surrounding we are ethical now uh, after an ethical failure. All of that is window dressing to doing the diagnostic on what exactly is wrong with the company. Um, you know, it resonates with me. I remember doing some work at DOJ and uh, on an FCPA case. And I remember Wei Chen when she was at DOJ. And one of the things that she constantly said that resonated with me was about measurement. You got to measure it. We want to see numbers. We want to see metrics. And that frustrated me because in ethics and compliance, there often are not a lot of hard metrics, quantitative metrics. But we know that what gets measured gets done. 
So to me, one of the biggest indicators when you walk into a company is ask, what are the incentives? What's the incentive structure here? Because that's what they measure. They measure whether or not you're achieving uh, the incentive requirement to get a bonus. And the bonus structure tells you a heck of a lot about what that company values. And it's, it's a measurement. And so if all they're measuring is financial performance, and it's all about EBITDA, and it's all about sales and financial figures, without a balancing perspective on how we do our work and ethics and core values, it's a red flag to me. Uh, you can say you've got a great ethics program, but where are the incentives? Where is the support of doing the right thing in the organization? And often we see issues there uh, right off the bat. I wanted to ask both of you all about maintaining a great culture, but I'd like to overlay what the Department of Justice said last June in the 2020 evaluation update, which they said essentially the chief compliance officer should be the keeper of institutional justice and institutional fairness. And that may have been kept in other departments, HR or, or perhaps others, but how do you see institutional justice and institutional fairness as a part of an overall culture? And how do you maintain that? Derek, we'll start with you. Yeah. Yeah. Institutional justice is a, um, it, 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 it's a perception. How do staff, how do the employees perceive uh, the main systems of the company? Do they perceive them as fair and equitable? Is the disciplinary system viewed as fair and fairly applied? You could have a great disciplinary process in writing, but if senior people and breadwinners are getting slapped on the wrist and the rank and file are getting terminated for minor offenses or the same offenses, uh, it undermines the credibility of the entire process. So that sense of institutional justice has to be strong in order, in my view, for there really to be a strong ethical culture. Yeah, I'm going to agree with that. I think accountability and enforcement are key elements in the success of any organization's um, program and culture. Um, and if you're not doing it and you're letting people get away with things um, because they're the friend of the boss, um, it, it, it just impacts how people look at things. Um, the other thing I'll, I'll say is, um, you know, that that uh, sort of that description of the compliance officer. Um, it, the, the compliance officer really does need to incorporate um, other folks within the within the company as part of their mandate. You know, it's not just it's not just the compliance officer being the face and you know holding all of the cards, if you will. They need to do it with a team. You know, and we've seen um, you know some companies as they're going through a cultural change and even trying to maintain a culture have these action committees that incorporate different people throughout the organization as part of that team to keep it fresh to keep it um, real um, and, um, and and to make it uh, sort of impactful for everyone. Um, you know, it's unfortunate, um, but we found that some companies fully embrace an ethical culture only after there's been a traumatic event, uh, right? So they, they have to have a monitor because something uh, bad has happened. And then all of a sudden, 
leadership get it, gets it and says, now we've got to become an ethical company. I think the challenge is really for those companies that are not in trouble and are trying to do this uh, and trying to figure out how do we you know, keep it fresh? How do we make sure that it's real? And I think that some of the things that Eric and I have talked about are really good steps um, to making, uh, to, to creating a great culture and maintaining, maintaining a great culture. Well, in a, in a, I'm sorry, and, and if not really for uh, just because it's the right thing to do to create that culture, DOJ has made it pretty clear in, in its guidance that culture matters, that culture is a uh, characteristic of a company's environment and corporate compliance and ethics program that they're looking for. And companies that have weak cultures are just not going to fare as well when something does happen. And I say when, because it will ultimately, uh, not if. Uh, Companies that have maintained a strong culture and there's a bad actor are going to end up much better off at the tail end of a resolution on any of these cases. It's just going to be easier to demonstrate resolve. Uh, Affiliated Monitors has long talked about an independent integrity monitor. And I was in my last corporate position under a monitorship, so I thought I knew what a monitor was. But the thing that struck me since continues to strike uh, a chord with me is each one of those words means something and they mean something different. And Eric, really, I think the first time I heard you speak, you focused on integrity and I had not consider that in in the monitorship process. So I was wondering if you you guys might be able to talk about the the really the the phrase but the individual words independent integrity monitor and how that concept that you guys have developed can be used in a proactive way to help companies maintain a great culture. Sure. Well, first of all, um, independent. Let let's uh, take those words. Um, you know, anyone can go in and analyze and assess uh, an organization. And there are some great consulting firms out there that can come in and uh, assess your corporate business processes and other things in a in a, a fantastic way. The independence is something that takes time and cultivation uh, because to be an effective monitor, uh, you can have no ties. You can have no preconceived notions. You can you can't go in with uh, you know any kind of a bias, uh, whether that bias is conscious or or not, uh, in how you view that organization. And we go to great pains as an organization to ensure that no one is on board that has preconceived notions. Uh, and that we are independent when we walk in the door. You may not agree with the conclusions we come up with or our observations, but you can't say, well, they concluded this because they fill in the blank. They have um, a parent that works here. They own stock in the company. Um, uh, one, one thing that's that's often asked of me, in fact, it was asked of me a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Monitors are paid for by the company. And is that a inherent lack of independence if the person that the company that is paying us is the monitored entity? Can that compromise our independence? 
For some people, maybe. Uh, but the question came up, what is our motivation to get someone off an agreement early? If we see a company that, that has done what they're supposed to do, that has met all of the requirements, and we feel that there really is no uh, inherent value in continuing a monitorship, how is the, the monitor motivated to say that to the government and to uh, support an early release from an agreement? Well, we are. Even though we have things to lose, we do f less monitoring. But the point is, monitoring is all we do. This is our bread and butter. And I would rather be known as the monitor that helped a company uh, reach its goals and get off an agreement early than the monitor that stuck to it and wanted to be sure that they were able to get every dollar out of a monitorship. Independence is, is a state of mind as well. Um, and then integrity. You know, the word integrity is wholeness. It's completeness. Uh, that's what integrity really means. And you've got to go back to basics in a company as to how people feel about what it is they do. And is this company acting in every decision that it makes with integrity? Uh, and asking employees that question and finding out if there's cynicism about the intentions and actions of the company, that can contribute to a weak corporate culture. Uh, let me just pick up on what Eric's saying. So, um, I, you know, there's no better example for me um, than just looking at Eric, right, and his, and his background as an inspector general um, and what that meant all of those years, walking that fine line, you know, um, where you have to sort of be independent, you have to have integrity in everything that you're doing and in the decisions that you're making. Right. And then because that's that's who we are. You know, Eric just epitomizes that. And his background is just perfect for affiliated. And it has always been the monitor piece um, is really just, I think, the professional side of things. You know, do you know what you're doing um, as a monitor? You know, um, it's very interesting, though. You know, sometimes we're up for monitorships and we see our competition and they might be very good at subject matter expertise. They might know how to do this or that because they're a subject matter expert, but they don't know how to monitor right? The thing that we do, and it comes from the years of experience that we've done, we know how to monitor. You know, we can take almost any setting and create a monitorship around that. And Tom, I think that that's sort of the key when you look at those three words and then tie it to the proactive monitoring, because I wanted to address that part of your question as well. So on the proactive side of things, we have taken um, our years of being monitors, you know, and looking at companies, all shapes and sizes, and looking at cultures, looking at programs, looking at controls, taking that expertise, if you will, and then applying it on the side where the company's not in trouble, but they want some somebody that has been a monitor to sort of give them a sense of what that looks like, um, you know, when a company's monitored, because you get the benefit of that. The other thing that we do, and again, I think it's part of the just that that independent expertise of being monitors is we can benchmark against companies. Um, we can benchmark good programs, bad programs, small controls, great controls, and use that 
and bring that to the companies that we're working with proactively. I think that's a great benefit for them. I hope that answers your question. Could I uh, follow up by asking why is it so critical or perhaps helpful is even a better word to have uh, a third party come in so that true independent come in uh, who's outside the corporation who can not only say things that perhaps others won't say, but also see things that others may not see. Yeah. So the way I look at it is it's really hard to assess yourself. You know what I mean? It is. And, you know, as I said before, um, to, to assess a company's compliance program, how effective it is and whether or not it's impactful on people that it's created that kind of culture that the compliance officer is doing the job that they were you know, brought in to do. Are they the face of the of compliance? It's hard for the compliance officer to assess his or herself. The other thing is hard for independent, um, the independent auditors to assess it because they don't have any sort of expertise in monitoring a program with success of a program like that. They may be able to look at elements of a compliance program like training, third party controls, you know, that kind of thing to see if they're effective. I think overall that I don't think they have that that type of in-depth experience to do the do that kind of assessment. So, you know, what we're talking about here is because a company has trouble um, doing that kind of honest, you know, independent assessment of itself. That's where the, the beauty of a third party comes in. And I don't, I'm, I'm sure, Eric, you want to pick up on that. Yeah, it's not a matter of intention. Um, you know, I, I suspect that most people, if they were tasked with internally with doing an assessment, would, would do it with integrity. They would do it uh, as they saw it. Uh, but it is very hard if you're the one that's been working day and night to establish a compliance program at a company. Um, you've got an inherent bias that you you think what you're doing is good and you think what you're doing is working. Um, and it, it's very hard to see it objectively. Um, also, it is very difficult for employees, even in the best cultures, to be completely honest with those that are making decisions on their career. People are going to keep their mouth shut if they see things that just aren't right. If they have a, an issue with the way the incentive structure is put together, that it incentivizes the wrong the wrong behaviors. If they think that the ethics training is terrible, do you really think they're going to raise their hand in many cases and say, you know, this training is terrible, you need to fix it? They're going to take it as fast as possible, check the box, and get back to work. It's only when a, a third party comes in, in a non-threatening, non-attributional environment, where people are going to be honest and say, yeah, you know, I've always thought about that. I, didn't, I, I never thought that that worked well. And then you get that feedback that the company can't get. I, I remember so many occasions where we have outbriefed senior leaders of the company, and they were amazed at the level of detail and the number of perspectives that we were able to get from their own employees who would never talk to them about those issues. Eric, early on, you talked about culture as the ultimate internal control. And if uh, with that, is there a way to, for a company to think through building out the rest of their con internal controls to roll up into that. And what I'm leading to is, is a way to present to a regulator, 
a present to the Securities and Exchange Commission of the Department of Justice. Yes, we have a great culture, but let me show you how we can demonstrate to that, even if it's not a qualitative measure, excuse me, a quantitative measure, it could be a, a qualitative measure. Could you uh, maybe walk us through some of those things? Sure. Uh, you know, when you create a um, an internal control, uh, there, there are a couple of factors associated with people need to understand what that control is and how to implement it. What's the process? What are my responsibilities? They need to see that there is some kind of, I would guess, um, uh, consequence for not following that control. And perhaps that there's some incentive for following the control. Lots of paper controls out there in every organization uh, that really are just paper. Um, you know, it's sort of like when you ask the accounts payable person, uh, you know, what's required uh, for you to cut a $100,000 check? And the accounts payable person says, well, I need to see a signature from a VP or above. And I say, show me. And they come up with a piece of paper and they say, yeah, you see, here's the form and there needs to be a signature on this form. How do you know that's a vice president or above? That's not my job. My job is to make sure that there's a signature on that line. Um, and, and so the control is useless in that regard. So you can demonstrate to the regulators and to law enforcement, if there is, if every control that you have is part of a series and a system of integrity in your organization, and that the, that the system, the culture is stacked to make people want to do the right thing, that they understand it. And if they don't do the right thing, there is a consequence. And if they are consistently doing the right thing, there's a benefit. There is some incentive for doing that. And I think it resonates better, a good control system that is steeped in a strong culture resonates better with the SEC and DOJ than just a piece of paper. Gentlemen, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if any of our listeners wanted more information on yourselves or affiliated monitors, where could they go? So our website, www.affiliatedmonitors.com, uh, and you can find all sorts of information about us, um, some publications that we've done, um, the, uh, the bios of our team, um, and uh, delighted to have anybody call us and uh, ask questions. Tom, thank you. Well, I'm going to add Affiliated Monitors has joined the podcast world with its own podcast. So uh, it's available on the Affiliated Monitors website and the Compliance Podcast Network. I'm so glad you guys have uh, taken that step. And the first four have just been very interesting and very useful. So I wanted to thank you so much for uh, taking the time to visit with me on this topic, because I think many compliance practitioners still view it as as they can't get their arms around it. And then they, then they can't think through how can I, we implement strategies to improve and maintain culture. So I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Compliance Handbook. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and tune in next week. Until then, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. 
Thanks again, and I look forward to visiting with you again.